Chapter Eight of the Return of Alfred by Herbert George Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Eight. Eric Stannard promises support. One. I say, are you the prod? Smith started, nearly overbalancing himself from the top of the gate, where for the last hour or more he had been smoking and meditating upon the photographs he had just seen in Mrs. Higgs' album. Gazing up at him stood a red-headed boy of about fourteen, his freckled features screwed up, either in interrogation or because the sun was in his eyes. Smith could not determine which. "'I say, are you the prod?' he repeated. "'The what?' queried Smith, recovering from his surprise. "'The prodigal, you know.' "'I was afraid some vagrant husk would betray me,' he smiled, as he proceeded to dig in the bowl of his pipe. The boy stared, then he grinned. "'It must be a rare sport being a prod,' he remarked, as he proceeded to subject Smith to a thorough and unembarrassed scrutiny. "'Although I suppose it's fairly rotten, hanging about, waiting for the what-you-call-it moment.' "'It was, as you say, unspeakably rotten,' Smith assured him gravely. Again the boy regarded him with a puzzled expression. "'I say, I hope I don't seem impert,' he said at length. "'Not at all. If you don't see what you require in the window, step inside.' "'You pulling my tip, what?' "'Nothing was further from my thoughts,' Smith assured him. "'Even if I knew just where your tip lurks. "'They've been holding an inquest on you at the jelleries,' the boy volunteered after a pause during which he seemed to be engaged in a fruitless endeavour to get at Smith's meaning. "'That old ass and, Colonel Enderby, you know, talked pie like a pussyfoot. Gave me a pain in my giz. I stuck up for you, though, and then the temp got a bit low, so I slithered.' "'And why?' inquired Smith, as he gazed down at his self-constituted defender. "'Why did you champion the monosyllabic prod?' "'The what?' "'Well,' the prod without the qualification suggested smith i say you're a bit wonky aren't you he regarded smith with a puzzled expression that relieved his remark of any suggestion of impertinence that was what all the row was about this afternoon with old end he said you went away funny in your habits and came back ditto in your brain you get me generally by playing back said smith with a smile there's an awkward spin about your conversation "'I didn't know you played cricket,' he cried, his eyes brightening, and the puzzled frown vanishing from his forehead. "'My name's Stannard,' he added inconsequently. "'You know my sister, Marjorie.' Smith folded up his tobacco pouch and returned it to his pocket. The information that this rather startling youth, with the flaming hair and archipelago of freckles, was Marjorie's brother, seemed to affect the situation. "'I've come to stay with Margie,' he added. You'd just gone out when I arrived. The loss was obviously mine, said Smith gravely. I say, you're a bit rummy about the top, aren't you? I'm beginning seriously to suspect it, was the reply, as he struck a match and proceeded to light his pipe. The boy continued to regard him, his face once more screwed up interrogatingly. Bit of a rabbit, aren't you? he inquired, regarding Smith quizzically. We can't all be guns. I say, that's jolly good, you know. I'll tell Margie. She likes things like that. 
You'll play for us against the Upper Sexton Blighters? Willingly. We shall get licked again, he said with conviction. We always do get licked. We lack guts, you see, and it's rotten. It must be inconvenient, agreed Smith, almost Promethean. I wonder how he'll get on with Marsh, he continued, regarding Smith with his head slightly on one side, as if the answer were written somewhere upon his person. He got me first ball last year, and he went on to explain that Marsh was the demon bowler of the enemy combination. There was a short silence, during which Smith smoked meditatively, whilst young Stannard continued to eye him with the unembarrassed stare of youth. "'I say,' he said at last, "'if I tell you my other name, you won't rot me.' "'I should scorn to take so unfair an advantage,' Smith assured him. "'Honest Inge?' "'Honest Inge,' smiled Smith. He was getting to like this frank and inconsequent youngster. "'Well, it's Eric,' said the boy, and he stood as if expecting some manifestation of surprise or disapproval. "'Eric,' repeated Smith. "'It seems quite a nice name, economical in syllables. You don't require a Pelman course to remember it.' "'I see you don't know,' he said with a sigh, "'or else you've forgotten.' Years ago some old blighter wrote a book called Eric or Little by Little, and everyone calls me Little by Little. I see. It's rotten. And a sheer waste of three syllables, agreed Smith. By the way, you haven't told me why you championed me at the... He paused. The jelleries, said Eric. The Miss Gels, you know. Tame cats, stiff as muslin, and all that silly rot. But quite these... I see, was the dry retort. But why the championing? I don't know, he cried, shaking his head. That's just like me. I suppose I get it from the pater. We're always on the other side. The shady side, suggested Smith. I hate to hear a chap sliced up when... when... Oh, you know, he said, missing the illusion. Smith nodded. Of course, he continued. I know you've got into somebody's herself. Into somebody's what? Sorry, esophagus, he grinned. Rotten habit I've gone into. Margie hates it. But I stuck up for you, and now I know you. I don't care. If we beat those upper sexton blighters, I shan't care a damn. I observe the distinction, said Smith, knocking his pipe against the heel of his boot. If you knock up a few runs, you know, continued Eric, especially of Marsh, You'll have every fellow in the place on your side. The vicar's a rare old sport. He played for Oxford donkeys years ago. But how about the Miss Gels? The Gels? Oh, they're all right. Frightfully respect and all that sort of tosh. But you just keep it up. I most undoubtedly will, said Smith. By the way, what is it I'm supposed to be keeping up? The Wang, of course. Excellent, my dear Watson, murmured Smith. Eh? I'm sorry. For the moment I thought I was a great investigator, endeavouring to arrive at your meaning via the wang. I get you, laughed Eric, displaying a strong but uneven set of teeth set in pale gums. The wangle, you know. Just keep it up. That, I take it, is your considered advice? Eric agreed with a grin. You'll find Margie a regular old water-jump, he added confidentially. I plumped right in the mid in the paper-chase. He added inconsequently. 
I thought there was something unusual about her. She's a ripper, but she's a bit, a bit, he hesitated. Anyhow, I'll do what I can to break her prej, he added. I shall take it as a favour if you will, said Smith gravely. During the next quarter of an hour, Eric Stannard told Smith much about Little Bilstead and its inhabitants, and not a little about his sister, who, in his phraseology, was absolutely top-hole. "'Now I'm afraid I must slith,' said Smith, when the stream of Eric's information showed signs of drying up. "'What's that?' he queried with puzzled eyes. "'I gathered that was the local contraction for taking one's departure.' "'I say, I'm glad you came.' cried Eric heartily, as he extended a big, grubby hand. "'And that you're going to play. Where do you go in?' "'Mostly in the soup these days,' replied Smith, whereat Stannard developed a veritable Roosevelt smile. A moment later Smith was swinging along the road in the direction of the vicarage, whilst Eric watched him from the middle of the road until he was out of sight, and then reluctantly turned and made his way towards the Grange. 2. "'I've seen the prod, Margie.' "'I didn't hear you knock, Eric,' said Marjorie, as she turned from her dressing-table, at the corners of her mouth the faint smile with which she always greeted her brother. "'Rats!' "'Rats agreed, still. "'More rats! I've seen the prod, and he's going to help us whack those upper Saxton blighters.' "'About that knock I didn't hear, Eric,' she persisted. "'Don't be an ass, Margie,' he cried as he threw himself full length upon the bed. "'I'm tired.' Marjorie advanced upon him with a hat-pin. Rolling across the bed, he slipped off the other side. Marjorie replaced the hat-pin upon the dressing-table, determining in future to lock her door against the incursions of this young Visigoth. "'I like the prod,' he volunteered. "'What makes you think that Mr. Warren will help us to win?' she inquired, dropping into a chair and keeping a wary eye on her brother in case of further manifestations of her bustiousness. "'He said he would. Play, I mean. I believe he can, too,' he added with conviction. "'Did he tell you that he was a good player?' "'Oh, don't talk rot, Margie. Fellows don't say things like that to each other.' "'Then how?' "'It was what he said about what I said to him that made me—' He paused, as if conscious of the crudeness of his construction. "'I see,' she said dryly. A moment later, a red-head seemed to hurl itself violently towards her. The wicker chair in which she sat was thrown over backwards, and a wild Malay ensued, in which there were occasional glimpses of a pair of shapely silk-stockinged legs, a red head, and a freckled face. Presently, the silk-stockinged legs were firmly planted upon the chest belonging to the freckled face. "'Now, Eric,' cried Marjorie, flushed and panting, "'I want to talk to you.' "'Well, get off my stomach, then,' he cried indignantly. I'm kneeling on your chest. My chest's not down there. It's up here. Our views on anatomy differ, Eric. I'm not going to get up until you promise to remember that I am grown up, and you must not— She paused, at a loss exactly how to describe the assault. All right, Margie. Get off my— Chest, she interrupted. Well, chest, then. You promise. Honest Inge. Marjorie rose to her feet, and, going over to the looking-glass, proceeded to tuck her disordered hair into some semblance of tidiness. "'Now sit down,' she said at length, as she turned from the mirror. "'I want to talk to you.' 
Eric edged towards the door. There was that about his sister's tone that warned him to be ready for flight. His life seemed to be one long endeavour to avoid people who wanted to talk to him. Such misguided efforts always crystallised into the same things, warning, advice, or condemnation, mostly all three together. "'Eric,' she continued, "'I don't want you to see much of Mr. Warren while you're staying here.' "'Why?' he challenged. She hesitated a moment before replying. "'Because... well, because I don't.' "'But why?' he persisted. "'He's frightfully dece.' "'Eric, dear, please be good and do as I ask,' she pleaded. "'I can't explain, but Mr. Warren has... has done things that... "'You don't like, I suppose,' he concluded scornfully. "'That's like a girl. They're always prej. "'Look at them this afternoon in the jelleries. "'They sliced him up into frags. "'Old End was like her head when we lost the footer cup.' Marjorie looked startled. She was uncertain how much Eric understood of what he may have heard at the Cedars. She regarded him speculatively. The situation was fraught with difficulties. "'Very well, Eric,' she said at length, with an air of reluctant decision. "'I shall have to speak to father.' "'He daren't,' he grinned. "'Why daren't I?' she challenged weakly. "'Because I should never speak to you again. And besides,' he added, "'you couldn't sneak.' For a moment she stood regarding him, a faint smile curving her lips. She and Eric had always been great friends. "'Even if you did,' he continued, "'it wouldn't make any diff. Father's as keen on prods as I am on getting into the second eleven next term. He's always on the side of the underdog.' Marjorie knew it, and a soft look came into her eyes. Ever since she was quite a tiny girl, she had mothered the gentle-natured father who, since the death of his wife, had lived the life of a recluse, happy only when surrounded by his books. "'That's why they booted him off the bench,' continued Eric. Marjorie smiled at the recollection of what had ensued as a result of Miles Stannard being made a justice of the peace. His conviction that crime was a subject for therapeutical treatment had at first bewildered his colleagues. Subsequently it angered them, particularly in cases of poaching. At length they had made it clear that they could not continue to sit on the same bench with a man who held such fantastical ideas upon crime and punishment. "'Won't you do it to please me?' she pleaded. "'Do what?' he demanded. "'See as little as possible of Mr. Warren.' "'He's Lady Warren's son,' parried Eric, an obstinate look in his eyes. "'He's quite respect.' With a sigh Marjorie picked up a book and dropped into a chair by the window and Eric, taking it as a sign of dismissal, walked towards the door. "'Wait until he's helped us to whack Upper Saxton,' he threw over his shoulder as he went out. "'Then you'll want to lick his boots.' And with that he was gone. Marjorie dropped the book upon her lap. If Alfred Warren really did bring about the defeat of the rival village, upon which she was as keen as the vicar himself, it would certainly complicate matters.' She had always heard that the heir to the Grange hated all forms of sport that did not involve the carrying of a gun, and that he had only played in the cricket match because pressure was brought to bear upon him. As she sat gazing out of the window, her thoughts drifted back to the days when, as a schoolgirl, her entry into the little Bilstead drawing-room had so often been followed by a sudden hush. In time she had come to realise the significance of such episodes. They meant that Alfred Warren, was the subject of conversation. 
The servants, however, had been less discreet, and she had heard many stories of his excesses. Some she failed to understand, others had made her feel afraid. In time the name of Alfred Warren had become associated in her mind with wrong, and she had instinctively avoided him. When by chance he had come into a room where she was with Lady Warren, he would sometimes give her a little nod and smile of recognition. At other times he would ignore her altogether, as if she were a stranger. To him she was obviously nothing more than a child. She recalled how puzzled she had been that Lady Warren, Willis, Mrs. Higgs, and the other servants could make such a fuss of any one who had been so wicked. Once she had seen him staggering through the village, singing to himself. It was a first experience of intoxication. She remembered how she had run all the way back to the Grange, where she had locked herself in a room and refused to go down to dinner. Now Alfred Warren had returned. But try as she might, the old sensations refused to be aroused. Why was it? Why had the old fear of him vanished? Had she become more tolerant? No, it could not be that, for she had on more than one occasion deliberately set to work to recall the things she had heard about him, and they awakened in her now an even greater dislike than when she had first heard them. She understood better. Then Eric liked him, and Eric was a creature of instinct. Could he like a really bad man? Would Nero like him too? She had never known Nero like anyone whom she disliked. Hitherto she had thought that badness always left its mark. Yet she had sat at luncheon with him, and—no, she certainly had not minded. The meal had seemed very short. Could she have sat alone at the same table with him before he—she shuddered. What had changed things? Why was it, then, that his presence no longer seemed to inspire her with dislike? Why did she have to keep reminding herself of what he had done? Why was she? With a swift movement she picked up the book that lay neglected upon her lap, and opening it at random, proceeded to read. She would not think of Alfred Warren. End of chapter 8